0: As a pastor and therapist for over 20 years, many people have spoken to me about feeling stuck or trapped. They're trying to have faith in incredibly challenging circumstances. They say things like, I'll be happy, or my life will finally begin when the house sale sells. I get out of debt. The biopsy results are negative, I lose 20 pounds, my husband stops drinking, I get into college, I get my next job, the pregnancy test is finally positive, the depression lifts, or my loved one changes. Maybe you can relate to one or two of those. We feel hostage to our circumstances, like it described in verse 11. We feel like a waterless pit, a prisoner in a waterless pit. We feel empty, barren, and dry. And It may be in our souls, or it may even be in our relationships. The pit had once been a well that was full of life, where we would come to be nourished and filled up, and now we feel like we're trapped inside it, a prisoner in a waterless pit. It's now nothing but a dry prison. Where do you find hope when your well is dry? Well, Zechariah is encouraging the people of Israel at just such a time as this, and he's inviting them to be people of hope no matter what. Zechariah was a priest and prophet at the same time as Haggai, who we heard about from Pastor Nathan last week. And these were dark times. These people are um, struggling with rebuilding the temple and with getting over the victim mentality of having been captives for 70 years. And he's reminding them who they are and who God is in their lives. He's telling them to return to God. And so as we take a look at some of these verses, we'll see how he describes God's promise and God's way of reconciling, restoring. Beginning at verse nine, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So we're told that God is in the business of making things right. Don't give up hope. More is coming in this story. And he tells us there is a coming king, but it's not a king on a war horse. It's a king on a donkey. And that was the symbol of a king of peace, a humble king. We saw that with King Solomon, who began his reign by coming into Jerusalem on a colt. But we also, for those of us who've read the New Testament, know if we look ahead, this story shows up again. In the New Testament, both Matthew and John quote this verse in Zechariah to point back to Jesus as the Messiah, the coming king who will come to bring salvation riding on a donkey. The triumphal entry at Palm Sunday. So this coming king, he goes on to tell us, is going to replace the old world with the new. He's gonna bring peace. No longer are we gonna need chariots and war horses and bows and arrows. It's gonna be a time of disarmament, a time where things are different. Another image for this era is it's going to be a place where the prisoners are set free from their waterless pits and prisons. And I ask you what your prison might be. For some people around the globe, their current prison is poverty, oppression, and slavery. But for us here today, those might not fully define our prison, but we may have fears that imprison us. Isolation. Secret sins and struggles. Bereavement. Spiritual poverty is often much harder to see, but it's no less a prison. We are still broken and in need of a savior. Sin holds us back, and therefore we need God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, and that is to set us free. Let's take a look together again at verse 11. In the beginning of the verse, it says, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. What Zechariah is referring to in that text is looking back at Exodus 24 with the Mosaic covenant. Moses has just gotten the Ten Commandments. He's told the people the different rules of the covenant that God has made with them, and then he gathers them together for worship. And he said, now we must bind ourselves together with God. We must accept the covenant. And the way they did that in those days was to sacrifice animals. It's not a practice we do now, But the reason it was done was a covenant of this nature was so serious that what you were saying is, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, take my life. You have my life. That's how serious this covenant is. And as a symbol, when we're making covenant with one another, we're actually going to sacrifice an animal as a symbol that my life for this pledge So they gather together, the bulls are slaughtered and the blood is placed, half of it in a bowl on the altar to symbolize God's acceptance of their offering and God's forgiveness. And then the other half is sprinkled on the people as a reminder, sort of a visual, tangible reminder that the bull has died in your place. This has been done for you. So back in Exodus 24, the language that's used for this says, this is the blood of the covenant. Well, what do we hear Zachariah do with that phrase? He says in this text, this is the blood of my covenant. He's saying, this is what I'm offering you, my covenant. He personalizes it. But that language may also sound familiar to you because it shows up again. Here's Jesus in the upper room with the disciples. He said, this is my blood of the covenant. What Jesus is saying that night on his, the way to the cross is that he's going to take care of our sin. It's his blood that pays the penalty to free us. He laid down his life so that we don't have to. The New Testament sacrifice of Jesus was lasting and permanent. It never had to be done again. He took it on himself. He said, I am willing to die for you. On February 18th, 1952, four young Coast Guardsmen were sent on an insane mission. It was the worst Nor'easter New England had ever seen, and there were two oil tankers off the coast of Cape Cod that had split in half and their crews were drowning, as the storm raged on, there were wave surges of up to 70 feet. Imagine a seven-story building, height of a wave coming at you. And these men went out in a wooden lifeboat that was 36 and a half feet long. As they were pulling off of shore, and you have freezing rain and snow pelting them and giant waves, they're heading towards the Chatham Bar as they left the Chatham Lighthouse. And some of you may know about this sandbar that's out there. It's shifting sands and shoals, it's always moving around. So it's incredibly dangerous to navigate. And in a storm, the waves surge and they break with deadly force on the bar. Boats aren't meant to go over the bar in a storm. But that's what these men have to do if they're going to save the stranded sailors. And so these men head out on a suicide mission. Men on the shore said, get lost, just don't do it, you're not going to make it back. There's no way you're going to survive this. But they take their orders and they do their mission. One of them reminds the others, the Coast Guard says you got to go out, but it doesn't say you got to come back. So they go out heading towards these huge waves, breaking. (laughs) The boat was designed to hold a total of the four crew, with 12 passengers. Well, the miracle is, they not only made it over the bar and found the tanker, despite the fact their compass got wiped out when they went across the bar, but they actually rescued 32 sailors and put them on a boat designed for 12 passengers, and brought them home to safety. These men were true heroes. They were incredibly courageous, and they were willing to die so that others might live. My husband and I were at the Chatham Lighthouse a few weeks ago, and looking out over the kind of calm, peaceful day, we read this little plaque about this story, and we were blown away. We walked to the car and said, they should make a movie about this. Well sure enough Disney got a hold of it and did a few years ago and it was based on the book called The Finest Hours. And what you learn about in the book is that the captain is Bernie Weber, a 24 year old, and he describes having an epiphany as he approached the bar. He believed that God had placed him in this time and place. And he thought of the thousands of sermons his dad gave when he was growing up and how his dad had been disappointed when he had turned his back on the ministry. And he felt like everything that had come before prepared him for this moment in time. And he knew he was serving God. He said, you receive the strength and the courage and you know what your duty is. You realize you have to attempt a rescue. It's born in you. It is part of your job when the men are out there and the sailors are jumping off the sinking stern and they're grabbing them out of the water. Uh, There was a point where the second in command says to him, listen, uh, we've got double capacity already. I think we better take these men to shore and then we'll come back and get the rest of them. And Bernie looked at him and he said, they both knew the men would never survive. The boat was going down, it was freezing cold. And he looked at him, he said, we all live or we all die. And so, survive they did. Well, Bernie seems to believe that he was set free for a reason. That God claimed his life and had a purpose for him and a purpose for his freedom. We may wonder what ours is. Well, let me tell you part of the answer. God's divine rescue plan is to free us and to make us right with him so that we can be restored back to the God who loves us. And we see this in verse 12 of our reading for today. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. When it says stronghold, it's talking about come back to Jerusalem, which means come back to me. That's what God's saying. Return to me. I am your home. And this beautiful phrase follows, "O prisoners of hope. Christians are prisoners of hope because we know that Jesus died for our sins. It's done. It's over. And yet the world is not made fully right and reconciled yet. That will come when Jesus returns. So we live in this moment of now and not yet. God's kingdom is here, and yet it's still to come. We are prisoners of hope. So our suffering and struggles have not all been done. They're still here with us. But we can take confidence in the fact that God is with us, and God will give us courage for the living of this day. I had the opportunity a couple weeks ago to visit one of our own, Carol Matkins, who gave me permission to share her story. She's been a leader here at Standwich Church. Many of you know her. She has two school-age children, and right before the holidays set in, she was put on a two-month bed rest. And I remember as I drove over to see her, I tried to imagine how I would feel if I had spent the holidays in bed, and I couldn't do the things that I would normally do, like set up a tree and buy gifts for your family and make the meals you like to make. I could imagine just being really upset with God and saying, couldn't we have put that in February, Lord? Could we talk about the timing, right? Or maybe I would have been depressed or feeling some despair about my circumstance. But what I got, got there and sat and talked to Carol, I was blown away. That wasn't her mood at all. Now, not to say there wasn't a struggle to it, but she was describing to me how God kept meeting her intimately in this time of bed rest. That he was not only teaching her things and opening her heart to things. She was feeling conviction and mercy and transformation as she had this intimate retreat time with God and how she couldn't wait to pray with other women who were going through similar struggles. I was blown away. I realized she had courage. She had hope. In what I thought would have been a prison, she found something redemptive, even better than I could have imagined. And I think that it reminded me, too, of Paul, who was a prisoner in chains, and he was writing letters to the churches, and he was saying, Rejoice, always. doesn't matter if you're in a prison. Rejoice. God loves you. He's with you. He is not going to abandon you. He is with you in your sufferings, and you know Jesus better through your sufferings. God's in all of it. And what are we promised, O prisoners of hope? We're told that God will restore us double." And in, in the Hebrew language there, it doesn't just mean twice as much. It means in fullness, in abundance, completely. So God's going to bring back, God is going to restore that which has been lost. When Bernie Weber faced the bar as they're riding the waves out, and they can see these giant, enormous breakers that they're about to try to navigate into and through, he said he Out of his total fear and sense of determination, he just needed to sing. And so he started singing, and the three other coasties joined him in song. And he said the song that he knew to sing at that moment was, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. I imagine for those young men, all singing loudly, as loud as they can above the roar of the waves and the storm, they may have thought they were singing their very last song. And Bernie knew in the words of that hymn that the blood shed on the cross does make us pure and whole, sets us free, and it meant that we would be with God forever. When our time comes, Jesus will take us home to God forever. May you and I be like Carol and Bernie and be people of hope, no matter what our circumstances are. Amen.